turn to Revelation 7. Revelation 7. We're going to read, <clears throat> study through Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17 this morning. But it's good to remember where we've come from uh, before we look at where we're going to. At this point in the book of Revelation, the six seals, the first six seals have been opened by Jesus. The world has been plunged into a period of war, famine, and persecution, and cataclysms known as the Great Tribulation. And despite God's judgment, at the end of the sixth seal, man cries out for their leader, the Antichrist, to defend them from the Lord. Who shall deliver us from there? Who shall be able to stand? The, the phrase there we talked about is this idea they're saying we need someone to stand. This God who is raining this judgment down upon us, we need someone to stand on our behalf against him. And they call for their man to do so. But before the seventh seal is opened to continue this judgment against the rebels, God, as we see in the beginning of chapter 7, he seals 144,000 Jews to be protected from these horrors and to shine his lights in a very dark world. And what this results in is one of the greatest revivals of all time. You know, this week we were praying for mountains to move, and, and I think sometimes it's very easy to look at our personal lives. We see things in our own lives we think will never change. We see things, individuals in our lives that we're praying for, and we see they aren't changing. And of course, it's, it's always easy to look at the culture around us, the, the, what, how it appears things, to, they're going downhill that uh, never change. I had a dear friend of mine, um, old friend of mine, I should say, uh, go home to be with the Lord yesterday. This was a gentleman who many years of prayer went in for, that he would receive the gospel, that he would turn to the Lord. And I'll be honest with you, there are definitely moments when I prayed for him that I did not expect God to do anything. They were not the prayers of greatest faith. And you know, I had the wonderful privilege to be his pastor for good 10 years disciple him, to baptize him. Don't ever give up on people. Don't ever give up on the Lord. He never fails. And he's always looking for those whose hearts out there who are just fully yielded to him that he might show himself strong on their behalf. Our God is a God who can still reach our culture, our God is a God who can still reach our city. He can still work in our lives. He is not a God that is, is even remotely thwarted <laughs> by how difficult your challenge is. And so when we look and we see this amazing revival that occurs in one of the most unlikely time periods, a time period when we would look at and say, well, yeah, everyone's hard against God. People are shaking their fists of God. One of the, the, the major themes of the book of Revelation is it says that God brings these judgments and they still shake their fist on him. And they still, despite all this, they won't repent. And yet into the midst of this time, there are so many who do. We of all people, we of all people should never give up hope. We of all people should be those who 
we talked about this as we've been going through our end time study, the idea of look up for your redemption draws nigh. The concept is, it's not to look up and be like, ah, Jesus, get me out of this mess. The concept is look up, look at what's in front of you and, and, and walk into it. We're to occupy until he comes. We're to love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us, to pray for those who, who mistreat us. To let our light shine in such a way that men would see our works and glorify our Father in heaven. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know what he wants to do. You don't know what he might be working in someone's heart. And you don't know if right around the corner in your own life will be the day when you step away from whatever it is that's been weighing you down and you walk in freedom. So when we look here and we see John say in verse nine, after this, after the sealing of the 144,000, but before the opening of the seventh seal, before more judgment comes, he says, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and with palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the lamb. John says here, he says, and after this I beheld and lo, the phrase there and lo, it's the idea of this is incredible. You've got to see this. John is absolutely blown away by what he sees because what he has seen in chapter six is this horrible thing coming upon the world and how they still shake their fist at God. But then he sees this picture in heaven of these standing before the throne and before the lamb. And he says, you gotta see this. A great multitude which no man could number. Jesus said that he will come in an hour when we know not. We're to always forge ahead as if today's the last day. Today's the day that the trumpet will sound. We're to occupy till he comes. He can still send revival in our day. I hear people ask me so frequently, why don't we see the things that God used to do in our day? I say, why not indeed? Our lives aren't over yet. So keep trusting him. Now whether it's the 144,000 who lead the charge in this or not, I don't know, but this is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew chapter 24 when he lists out the seals in chronological order without using that language. He says the exact same thing. And we get to this point in the Great Tribulation as he's listing out what's happening in chronological order. In Matthew 24, verse 14, he makes it very clear. In this gospel, he says, of the kingdom it shall be preached unto the, in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. We see here that this great multitude is of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. But we see that they are not on the earth People all over the world are represented in this multitude, but they're not on the earth. It's as they stand before the throne and before the Lamb. And it says they are clothed in white robes and with palms in their hands. White robes, we see in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, these are the same robes that were given to the, and we talked about this is different than the linen that we are given which is the righteousnesses of the saints. These are the clothes that are given to those who are martyred during the great tribulation. 
These who are here, this multitude that are in heaven before the Lamb and before the throne, they are those who have been violently slain for their faith in Christ. And they have palm branches in their hands. The date palm, we have palm trees here in Florida. I have two of them in my front yard. We hate them. I mean, I suppose under certain circumstances, palm trees have a beauty to them. Um, However, my palm trees are frequently, they have dead branches on them. And they're so tall that you can't get to them with any type of a normal instrument of chopping or cutting or anything like that. And so it's always this big rigorous deal to try to somehow beautify the palm trees, which means they don't get beautified and they're just ugly in the front yard. The date palm trees of Israel, they are similar in look to our palm trees, but they are date palm trees. And the first mention of the date palm in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 15, 27. It was an oasis area where Israel camped just after crossing the Red Sea. It was a place of rest, a place of refreshment. They had been enslaved for centuries. They had come out with a mighty hand, but... Even with that, Pharaoh had gone back on his word and he had chased them and they were hemmed in in the desert with the Red Sea in front of them, two mountains on the side and the Egyptian army behind them. God opened the Red Sea, you know the story. And he rescued Israel through that miracle, destroying Pharaoh and his army. But then when Israel got to the other side, you can imagine how exhausted they were. There's no water. And the Lord leads them eventually to this beautiful oasis, a place of rest, a place of refreshment. The next time it's mentioned is in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, where Israel is commanded to wave these date palm branches in celebration during the Feast of the Tabernacles. I don't have time to go into all the details of the Feast of the Tabernacles this morning, but suffice it to say that that feast was to celebrate God's provision in the wilderness but also to celebrate that they weren't in the desert anymore, that they were free. They were in the promised land. They were home. They could finally rest. The palm tree, it symbolizes freedom, victory, and an end to struggle. It's why the crowds waved them during Jesus' triumphant entry to Jerusalem. They proclaimed the word Hosanna. Don't you see us? Rescue us. We're tired of the oppression. We're tired of not being in our own home. At home in our own home. Save us now, please. And we see this multitude here waving the palm branches before Jesus and the Father. They too are proclaiming Hosanna, but as not something that they need the Lord to do, they're proclaiming it as something that is already accomplished. And they cry with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. What they're saying is not save now. They're saying you have saved us. You have rescued us. And you are now giving us rest. We are finally home. And when they worship the Lord for doing so, all the rest of heaven joins in. Look at verse 11 and 12. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four living creatures and they fell before the throne on their faces and they worshiped God saying, amen, it is truth, that is true. You have saved them. 
you have given them rest. Jesus is the one who rescued you, and you are forever free. And so blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, it is truth. Once again, we see all of heaven, as they so often do in the book of Revelation, ascribe all of these things to the Lord. All blessing, all praise belongs to Him, all glory, the the concept of of, of a great weight, a great honor belongs to Him. All wisdom, He knows the best way to do things, and we should look to Him for our answers, for our direction. He is worthy to be thanked. The word honor there means to value, to hold in high esteem. He should have the highest priority, the highest place in our lives. All power. He is able to do everything. He is able to work in us and through us. All might. They be unto our God forever and ever. So I ask you again, as I've been doing throughout the book of Revelation, you know, have you yielded to the Lord that he might do as he pleases in your life? Have you surrendered to Jesus all of your resources, all your might? Have you yielded to his wisdom, his direction in your life? Have you laid down your abilities that he might live through you with his power? And have you given him the authority to rule your life? Have you praised him for what he's done for you? And have you acknowledged that your life is blessed only because Christ's blessings are resting upon you? Is that a part of your regular worship? You know, we call what we just did when we sang worship, and certainly it was. But what about when there's no band there? (laughs) What about when it's just you? There's nothing like taking every single day and just saying, Lord, I am where I am because of what you've done. I'm so thankful for what you've done. I give you the blessing and the praise for all you've done, for who you are. And I recommit my life to you. I resurrender my life to your leadership, your kingship in my life. It should be a part of our regular worship every day. Is it? Now, while the similarities between those who were violently killed in the fifth seal in chapter 6 of Revelation and this group seem obvious, one of the elders here in heaven doesn't assume John makes the connection. And so in verse 13, it says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these that are arrayed in white robes? Where did they come from? And I said unto him, Sir, you know. <laughs> and he said unto me, These are they which have come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I love the question, who are these? And love John's answer. You've been here far longer than I have. The phrase there, sir, you know, it's in the perfect tense, which means you've known all along. (laughs) I know you're not asking me because you don't know. Help me out here. You surely do know who they are. And he tells them, these are they which came out. The phrase there means arriving out of. These are those who have just arrived They are arriving out of, this is a a current event that's taking place as far as the chronology of Revelation. They're arriving out of great tribulation, the King James says, but there's a word the there in the original Greek. These are those who have arrived out of the great time of trouble, the great tribulation, that seven-year period. 
and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I love the juxtaposition of the end of chapter 6 to the end of chapter 7 because where we have all these people who are crying out for someone to rescue them from the judgment of God, crying out for their man, the Antichrist, to step up on their behalf. While many did do that, this massive group repented and turned to the Lord when judgment came. They repented and they turned to the Lord in faith. They washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I'm not the one who does laundry in the family. There's a reason for that. But I know enough to know that my wife and the kids, a lot of the kids do their own laundry, that when they do laundry, they don't wash it out with blood. Blood does not cleanse. If you've ever had the privilege of having to clean something that had blood on it, you know it stains. But Jesus' death on the cross, his shed blood, does do something supernatural. It does cleanse us, just like God promised us. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, we have a fascinating interaction between the prophet and the Lord as he is appealing through the prophet to his people, Judah. In Isaiah 1.18, we have that famous verse, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. How has that happened? How is that possible? Well, he goes up in verses 16 and 17 and explains. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, and cease to do evil. Then, learn to do well, seek justice, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Now, in the context of the Old Testament, the, the Israelite would understand exactly what he's talking about there. God had a law. Stop violating my law and start doing what it says. Bring the offerings before me. And yet there would be a sense, though, that they would know that, well, yeah, but we're going to be right here again again. Paul described this problem, not with the law, but with us, in Romans chapter 7, when he said the law is holy and just. Problem's not it. The problem's me. I'm sold under sin. And as he explains this, he goes on to say, the problem is, there is in me dwelling no good thing. There are no resources for me to pull on in and of myself to do what God says. And so even from the beginning, the Lord was speaking of that great sacrifice that would come, not the blood of bulls or of lambs, which cannot take away sin, but the blood of our Savior that can supernaturally do what blood cannot do. It will cleanse us. And how do we experience that cleansing? Exactly as Isaiah says here. It starts with repentance. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. What is repentance? It's a change of mind is what the word means. It means in the Old Testament to turn It means that I I come to a place where I I come to God on his terms instead of living on my own terms. If you want to know what living on your own terms is, read the first 15 verses of Isaiah chapter 1 and and all that nonsense. You read through all the sin that was going on in Judah where the Lord says it is from the head to the toe, the whole thing is sick. It starts with repentance. Repentance. 
And to turn from something, you, of course, have to turn toward something. And so it leads to faith. Where repentance comes to God in His terms instead of living on my own terms, where I acknowledge my sin, I turn from my sin. Faith trusts in the cleansing work of the Savior and decides to follow the Savior from now on. He says, wash you. And then he says, learn to do well. It's right there. The gospel's right there. (laughs) And when any person does that, when they repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, it changes everything. It restores us to a right relationship with God and it grants us access to all the blessings of being in his family. And so we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, therefore, therefore, this is why they, this is why they are before the throne of God, because they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're in the presence of God. It's why you see them here. It's not because they decided to turn over a new leaf. It's not beside, that they decided to get gooder than they were. because they repented of their sins and they trusted in Christ as their Savior. In Titus chapter 3, we read it in our scripture reading in verses 5 through 7. It makes it very clear. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us, he rescued us, he delivered us. Think about that for a minute. What is mercy? It's really simple. It's not getting what you deserve. It's not just a matter of when we look at this, we say not by works of righteousness that we have done. I could have been a little better. By his mercy. He saw how awful and ugly we were. And he said, I love you anyway. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And the result is that whosoever may believe in him will not perish, but everlasting life. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, And all of that was shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who rescued us. In order that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I cannot rescue myself. You cannot rescue yourself. You and I must repent of that idea. We must turn from our sin. I must place my trust in the mercy of God made possible by the cross of Christ. Now, as we turn back to Revelation 7, therefore, that's why they're before the throne of God. In addition to being with the Lord forever, these tribulation believers, they have special blessings in heaven. They have unique blessings to the ones that we have as the church, as the bride of Christ. It mentions here that they serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. The concept here of serving refers not just to the general idea of having a servant's heart or being there for one another. This refers specifically to religious duties. They will serve in some type of a religious capacity, some type of a priestly type of capacity, it says, in the temple, and he that sits on the throne will dwell among them. 
Now the question, of course, is, is this the heavenly temple or is it the earthly temple that will be in place during Jesus' millennial reign? When I mention that sometimes, or people read the scripture, Ezekiel 40 to 48 in particular, and they're like, this sounds like it's talking about the reign of Christ. Yeah, well, it talks about sacrifices, Pastor Will. That, that sounds crazy, like blasphemous. How can, why do we need sacrifices? Jesus is the only sacrifice. And, and I, what I tried to explain is this way. I was like, you ever come to a church potluck? Of course. Well, just because we're not the ones butchering the meat doesn't mean it's not the same thing. The offerings that we read about there, they are not for atonement for sin or anything like that. Christ already did all of that. But the offerings that are taking place there, just in the same way that the offerings that took place before Christ came, look forward to his coming, look forward to being fulfilled in him. All of these sacrifices going on in the New Testament, going on in the millennial kingdom, they're all looking back to what was already accomplished. So which one is it? Are they serving in the earthly temple where Jesus reigns for a thousand years or are they serving in the heavenly temple? Well, verse 16, we'll get to it later, implies it's the heavenly temple, so I won't go into that now. But I want to mention here before we move there the phrase at the end of verse 15, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. It's the same word in John 1.14 where it says that Jesus will tabernacle among us, the incarnation means to spread one's tent over, to tabernacle, to the idea of, of being in close proximity. God the Father is the one on the throne, so this is a beautiful picture of how he will remain close to these who have gone through such difficult times. They will remain close to his presence, and they will be protected and cared for for the rest of eternity. Look at verses 16 and 17. They shall hunger no more, neither, shall, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light in them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne, he shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Very interesting when you say, why were they hungering and thirsting when they were here? I mean, were they all poor? What, what, what particularly was the, the reason that they, this was something they, they needed to find rest from? They needed to find restoration from in heaven. Well, we know later on in the book of Revelation that the Antichrist will pass a law that a person cannot buy or sell unless they take his mark. So is it possible then that businesses and communities already started uh, leveraging their power on those they disagreed with before this law was passed in the Great Tribulation? Is it possible that these believers struggled to find necessary sustenance because of those challenges? I don't know. I can tell you this, that as commerce has become more global in our day and age, businesses and, and organizations are able to leverage their monetary power to exclude groups of people they disagree with. We are seeing it happen over and over and over again. I remember in the 80s when I first got saved, I saw it in the 90s, I saw it in the early 2000s, where Christians were trying to use their bargaining power, their monetary power, to leverage people to not do certain things. We're going to boycott this, we're going to boycott that. We're, you know, I mean, I, I, was, I got saved in the 80s, so you know, I, was a, I was a Striper fan, a Petra fan, you know, and, and there were tons of Christians who were there boycotting Christian concerts, because you know? of course, rock music's of the devil. Can I say something to you that may sting a little bit?
Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're to live as those who are free. He says, do not use your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but be the servants of God. I preached for years. When we are out of power, when we don't have the ability to leverage our power, it's going to come back on us. We are watching it happen now. We did not learn that from Christ. As commerce has become more global, businesses are leveraging their monetary power to exclude groups of people they don't agree with. And while I cannot say the Bible predicts this will happen, I do believe we had good reason to believe that this will worsen and will eventually culminate in the mark of the beast. Now, while I recognize these are tribulation believers, it's not the body of Christ, the Bible talks about our blessings in heaven, and I can assure you, you will never go hungry or thirsty in heaven either. And I would say to you this morning, if you have ever gone hungry or struggled financially, know this, there is a day coming when you will never experience that again. Never again. Isn't that awesome news? Never. It also mentions here that the sun, neither does tell the sun light on them nor any heat. This is the strongest reason that I believe they will serve in the heavenly temple because I can testify that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, the earthly temple will certainly experience sunlight. But these guys, it says, they will not. Why is that important? Why is the sunlight a problem? What well, mentions in the next verse, nor any heat. And the word there means scorching heat. Anybody here believe in, uh, in, in climate problems? I know that's a big hot topic. People always ask me, say, Pastor Will, do you believe in, 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 in climate catastrophe, things like that? And I say, absolutely. And that usually freaks people out, you know? Absolutely. I say, what? How can, how can you believe in this stuff? Because the Bible tells us it's going to happen. So whether what you're hearing right now is actuality or not, I don't know anything about that. But I can promise you this. There's going to be serious climate issues that do occur in the future. As the Great Tribulation progresses, we're going to see issues with Earth's climate, including massive heat waves. It is very possible that these believers had started to experience this before they were violently killed, violently martyred for their faith. This also could just be possibly a reference to how they are out in the open with no tent or home to shade them because their property rights were revoked. The history of Christianity is riddled with believers' property rights being removed. It doesn't matter where you're at. It's in our own history. Go look up the early history of the American Revolution and, and look at what's happened to some people there. Wherever people are in power, Christians have suffered from having their property rights removed. Believers have suffered that. Israel constantly, constantly trying to be dispossessed by their enemies around them. And it will not be different in the Great Tribulation. These tribulation saints, many of them will lose their homes, they will lose their jobs, and they will be out in the scorching heat. You ever get the, the letter at the start of the year, right before the start of the year from the mortgage company? 
that pleasant letter that tells you your mortgage is going up because your insurance went up higher or because something happened with the escrow or whatever or rates went up or whatever it might be. Do you know how nice it's going to be never to get that letter in heaven? Never. I was, interesting. you sit down, you know, you sit down with a mortgage broker and you're working through everything. You're like, okay, so my payment's going to be this. Like, that's the only thing that matters to me. Like, this will be my payment, right? You know, and, and, and I'm old enough. I bought a few homes. I know that first numbers they start giving you, that's not the real payment. Because there's going to be all these little tiny things that are going to be added in the same way anytime you get anything. You know, hey, come get the new AT&T deal. Your phone bill will be this. I go, listen, I know you're lying to me. It's not going to be that. Tell me what it's going to be with all the little $4 charges here and there. No lies in heaven. You will never be disappointed in heaven. Never. There'll be no mortgage payments either. And there'll be no stress of working by the sweat of your brow. And so again, while I know this is not the body of Christ, we have those same promises. If you're going through financial struggles right now, or you've been persecuted, hang in there. It cannot last forever. And what's coming (laughs) is worth the hard times now, amen? For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, shall lead them unto fountains, unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. It's interesting for this group, while the church rules with Christ and lives in the New Jerusalem, while Israel finally experiences the full blessing of Abraham under Christ's reign in the earthly Jerusalem, Jesus will give these believers protection, refreshment, and healing in heaven. And this implies to us that the life of a tribulation believer before they are killed will be brutally awful. Why do I point that out? Because while heaven is awesome (laughs) and is going to be awesome, if you are thinking, well, I'll get right with God when I see all this awful stuff happen, that's when I'll know it's the end. But for now, I'm going to do what I want. Can I suggest to you this morning that is not a good plan? For two reasons. Tomorrow isn't promised to you. That's reason number one. There is no promise. Some of us, we get to say goodbye to those we love, and sometimes they're just gone. You don't control that. You don't control it for you. You don't control it for others. It is not a good plan to say, well, I'll take care of this at a later date. The second reason it's not a good idea is that Jesus tells us to pray that we might escape this time. (laughs) He says, pray that you're worthy to escape this time that's going to come upon all the earth in Luke chapter 21. You do not want to be around for this. I'm so grateful as you read about this revival that occurs in Revelation chapter 7. I'm so grateful that there's going to be people that I'm going to know and I'm going to meet in heaven, a great multitude that I'm going to spend eternity with. But you don't want to be part of that group if you can be part of the church. 
So don't wait. Now, for those of you who are here this morning who are believers, Jesus makes us a promise. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Because you have kept the word of my patience, and I will, keep you, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That's our promise. This is not our future. We will be with the Lord. We will be there singing the song of Revelation chapter 5. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. There's only one group that fulfills that. Yeah, this is church. But his word of exhortation to us in the very next verse in Revelation 3.11 is this. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have that no man take your crown. As we look at this massive revival that's coming here, my word and exhortation to you is the same thing. Hold fast. Hold tight. Hold tight to the word of truth. Hold tight to the Lord. There is going to be tests and trials in the days ahead. There's going to be voices that they're already out there. I've been preaching about it for the last two years. There's going to be voices that are calling you to go in a direction that is radically different from what the Bible tells us to do. Hold fast. Hold fast. We are not called to bunker down till Jesus comes. He has sent us out as sheep amongst wolves. So go into all the world and make disciples. That's what we're called to do. To love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us, to pray for them, and sometimes to give our lives up for them. That others might come into the kingdom, that others might hear the gospel, that God might be glorified. So, don't give up. Don't stop walking with the Lord. Don't give up on other people. Keep praying. Keep interceding. Don't give up on our nation. Keep praying. Amen? Let's all stand. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you're not right with him, you need to repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior, I, I, I beg you, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He loves you immensely. And can you imagine what it would be like to stand before him someday and to say, you rejected it. What an awful thought. We're going to pray, and, and afterwards, after we sing, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive the Lord. And so I want to encourage you, if you need to do that this morning, don't put it off another day. He loves you. He died for you. He proved it, and he'll never leave you or forsake you if you turn to him. He will take you unto himself no matter what you've done. He'll wash away all your sin. He'll make you white as snow. He will come and live inside your heart. And like my old friend that I mentioned this morning, he will change your life. He'll make you new. So Lord, we thank you for making us new. We thank you for washing us in the blood of the Lamb. We thank you, Lord, that we've been clothed in your righteousness, not because of any righteousness we've done, 
We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your spirit and that we are justified by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for being so merciful to us. And Lord, in return, we offer our lives up to you as a living sacrifice, presenting everything to you. Our reasonable act of worship, Lord, is to give you all the blessing, glory, honor, power, all that heaven ascribed to you there. We give it to you now in worship. We say, Lord, take our lives, spend them for your glory. We pray you pour out your spirit upon us. Give us boldness to share our faith with a world that needs to hear it. And Lord, give us fortitude that we would answer to your exhortation that men ought always pray and never to faint. Thank you for never giving up on us, Lord. We love you. We give this time of worship to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.